mean, you've been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting in Work, episode 52. I'm Johnny Peck, and I have a ripper of a show for you this week, as it coincides with the launch of 8bit.net. The relaunch, I should say, has gone live with its new website. The new home for Putting in Work will be 8bit.net slash PIW, and it's 8bit spelt A-T-E. And you can find there the latest episode every week, along with links to my merch and a new sizzle reel I've just edited together. If you see that on Twitter or wherever, please share it around to spread the word. Show people what the show's all about. Speaking of spreading the word, this week's iTunes review of the week goes to Aaron Treble, who says, Every week, Jono knocks it out of the park. Great conversation, perfect guests, absolutely brilliant. Five out of five. Well, thanks, Aaron. And I think you're really going to like this week's guest. He's none other than Matt Austin from the Starters on NBA TV, previously the Basketball Jones. I'm a huge fan of the Starters. They're actually my favorite podcasters out there, even though the thing they're probably most well-known for is a TV show. If you don't know the Starters, it's six guys who host or produce a basketball talk show, I suppose. Five times a week, there's two extra podcasts as well. And I've been a fan of these guys since probably 2010, I believe it was. The story of the starters is really quite remarkable. They started out doing a podcast. They turned it into a TV show in one of their apartment buildings. They put in a lot of work. They were doing it four or five times a week, I think it was, in the start. They weren't making any money for the longest time until Matt Austin came along, our guest today, and added a little extra to the formula of the Basketball Jones. It's not just a podcast and a talk show. They also did a lot of sketches. They did a lot of entertaining content. They really meshed comedy with sports talk in a way that I've never seen done to such a great level. And the Basketball Jones is probably the first podcast to listen to where I actually felt like... I know these guys, these guys, I feel like I'm friends with them because I listen to them five or six times a week. The chance came to move over to NBA TV in Atlanta and it's really paid off. They're now working alongside some of their heroes in NBA, former players, now analysts like Shaq and Charles Barkley. It was really great to talk to Matt, who's kind of an outsider as someone who studied a law degree and wasn't really into basketball, wasn't into the NBA, but he came in just from a media production interest standpoint and brought such a level of extra professionalism and organization to this podcast that's now a studio TV show. So here's Matt Austin to talk about the Basketball Jones, the starters, the incredible journey they've been on together and what work it takes to make a show with such polish as the starters. Thank you so much for joining me, Matt. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So I, I was literally just listening to a podcast that you recorded this morning and here we are recording another one with the starter set behind you. That's pretty surreal. Well, it's good to know that we uploaded it and it's able to be downloaded because, you know, sometimes it doesn't always happen and that uh, someone in your part of the world listened to it. It's really crazy to think that actually, but what, what time is it there? Uh, 8.43 a.m. That's early. Thank you for waking up this yeah. early. I set my alarm for you, Matt. I, I appreciate that. On you a Saturday. You haven't showered so. yet. Who knows if no, you're wearing pants. I'm here at work. <laughs> That's great. So for people that haven't been deep in the weeds of the starters and the basketball Jones, it's a podcast. It's a TV show. It's so many things. Can you explain what your role is? Because I, I feel like producer doesn't really encapsulate exactly your efforts and what you have to do for so much content. Yeah, I think in general, producer is pretty nebulous term. And I think it means different things for almost everyone that does it. At least that's that's been my experience. But on the starters, my responsibilities are sort of on a micro level, making sure the show gets to air every day. And that involves everything from being responsible for the ultimate creative direction of it, what we're talking about on the show, how we're talking about it, 
to the video that we're putting into the show, to the graphics that we're putting onto the show, uh, and then um, the delivery of that so it gets on TV so that the podcast gets to where it needs to go, um, so that the clips get to your Facebooks and Twitters and YouTubes. And then uh, on a bigger level, sort of working with the other departments at Turner, like promotions and marketing, production, talent, to get everything that needs to happen for the show. Because obviously it's bigger than just what goes to air every day. Hmm. Uh, and then on our podcast, I'm a producer of the podcast, but I'm also on it. And I don't talk too much, but I have certain little niches where I fill in complain. gaps slash complain. Yeah, I do yeah. have a segment where I specifically yeah. complain, <laughs> which is a truly a, a dream come true for me. That's awesome. You mentioned that that's a dream come true. It's it's funny because the rest of the guys, well, I guess five out of the seven guys, they've literally got their dream jobs talking about their childhood, passion, basketball, you know, but you're not in that same sphere. So how is it being kind of an outsider to the NBA world uh, where I guess almost everyone that you work with, it's their like number one passion in life and it's something that they probably always aspired to do, but you kind of fell into it in a path that we'll cover in one of my next questions. Well, minor correction, it's actually four of the six of us whose dream it was to do it. There's then right. me and me and JD, the other producer slash director. I said five out of seven. I think I uh, I added a start in there. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> first of all, it's very weird to me that I'm here at all. I never expected to be here. I never expected to work in sports. I always hoped that I would work in media, in production, in something creative. But I never thought that this would be the thing that ended up happening. Uh, basically, not to, to step on what might be your next question, but I met skeets tass and jd in university so good to talk to someone from the commonwealth so i can call it university and not college again uh, <laughs> so we were working when we would work together in school we we weren't working on necessarily sports related activities uh, that said tass had a a radio show that jd was the producer of that was a sports show but other than that we would we would just do other things that we'd work on together. And I, after we graduated university, I went to law school in Montreal. Those other three guys stayed in Toronto. And basically the genesis of the show is one day they're out having a beer, talking about their jobs, saying, hey, you know, we should really be doing something a little bit more creative to keep up that part of our lives. JD says, hey, I just heard about this thing called podcasting. Which sounds crazy now, but it's 2006 then. I, I I could be wrong, but I think the iTunes store opens in like 2005, somewhere around there. So podcasting is pretty new. No one really knows what it is. And uh, the next week they go, Tass and Skeets go over to JD's house. And the way they've told it to me, it was basically like they walked in the room and were like, oh, well, what should we talk about? And they were like, well, we both like basketball. Okay, let's talk about basketball. And And that's how it started. So when I moved back to Toronto... Uh, four years later, or th uh, three and a half, four years later, they were already doing it, and they needed help. And what I soon found was that even though I wasn't a very hardcore basketball fan, the things that I could offer, and obviously the things that JD could offer, were was a, a creative outlook on it to say, hey, you guys have the basketball knowledge. You know what you're doing there. But how can we then present that knowledge 
in an interesting way or in a more interesting way than other people are doing it. And, and that's what we've really kept up to now. Like when JD and I talk about it, we don't think of this as a sports show because we have zero history with, with sports shows. Mm. Never mind the fact that we, like you, did not get ESPN growing up. You know, I'm sure, you know, we had our own network in Canada called TSN, which was very similar when I was growing up. And I was into hockey, so I'd watch it sometimes, but I, I certainly did not grow up as they did with, you know, Marv Albert and Ernie Johnson and Charles Barkley. Like, these were all new things to me. So I didn't, and I and JD didn't necessarily have an idea of how a sports show was supposed to be. So we just thought, well, what do we think would be the most fun and interesting way to do it? And I think we're five, this is our fifth season at NBA TV. I think every year we sort of push it more towards it being just sort of a fun show that happens to be about basketball. Hmm. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I think maybe having that outsider perspective means that it's not just the same, you know, sports center ripoff, like archetype that a lot of sports shows can turn into yeah i think i think that's true but i also think from the perspective of each of the four hosts that are on the show yes they may have dreamt about doing this but i don't think they ever you know they're not journalism students they didn't come out of a specific mold you know trey came out of blogging and lee came out of uh you know everything <laughs> i mean just being a fan really yeah. and and same for skeets and tasks so i don't think that they would have wanted to do a, you know put on blazers and a tie and sit behind a desk and do a show that way anyway so we're constantly kind of all challenging each other to do it in the most interesting way possible yeah that's cool so let's go back a little bit to as far as my research goes did you officially join the Basketball Jones, as it was known back then in 2009. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. Sure. So what was it like uh, as they brought you in? Was it that they were, saw themselves needing your services and they were trying to get to the next level? So I finished law school and I decided to move back to Toronto. And I also decided that I didn't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> I had taken the New York bar, I'd passed it. And then I was sort of, it became very real. I sort of was staring down the barrel of a a lifetime as a lawyer, and I just ultimately couldn't see myself doing it. So I decide, hey, I'll move back to Toronto, and I want to get back into media production. At the time, I thought, you know, maybe I can get back into it through law, <laughs> either as an entertainment lawyer, which I didn't really want to do, or honestly, I, I don't really remember what I, <laughs> why I thought that would work. But I started working for the Toronto Film Festival. Uh, which was like just very seasonal work. And I moved back in the summer. So it just happened to be when the NBA season was about to start. I'm hanging out with JD, Tass, and Skeets, but, you know, we're just hanging out. And then they're like, hey, the season's about to start. We've been doing this for four years. We haven't been getting paid. You know, we're losing money on this thing, and we're exhausted. Because they would wake up early in the morning to do it and then go to their regular jobs. JD, I believe, had just had... His first or second kid, you know, basically had a family now. And so he was sort of like, hey, how about you come on? You come in in the morning. I'll record the show. Then I'll leave to go to my job. And then you can edit it and, you know, export it and publish it to Vimeo, I think we were using at the time. So, so it was a video show at that point? Yeah, it was a video show. 
filmed yeah. in Skeets's apartment's party room, like where they had like a billiards table. Common room or whatever, yeah. Exactly. So that's basically how I came on. And within a couple weeks, we were just having so much fun doing it. And I very naively said, hey, why don't we, why don't we focus on this? Why don't we try to do this as our jobs instead of doing this in the morning for a couple hours and then leaving to go to other jobs? And they basically said, yeah, uh, duh, but we've been trying to do that for four years and it hasn't worked out, so I don't really know if it's going to happen. When I came on, there, there was definitely a sense of we love doing this and we want to do it and people love the show. But we're not sure how much longer we can keep this going because it, do, it doesn't seem feasible to, to spend money on it and not to have it be a source of income. I think it had sort of gone past the point of being a hobby where um, they were sort of like, well, we're not going to put that, all this work into it if it's not viable for a career. Mm. So... In my time when I was very underemployed, I would, you know, we started to create pitch materials and created documents that showed stats about the show and uh, created a reel for the show, which JD did, and started bringing it around to people. And eventually, so this was, I guess, October 2009, we had signed a deal then a few months later by... January, February of 2010, and then we all started at the score, which was a small Canadian broadcaster, in I think February or March of 2010. So for me, there was like six months where it was unpaid, but for them, it was like a full four years. So it was a very different experience for each of us. I got in on the easy end of it, I suppose. But at the same time, it probably wouldn't have got to that easy part without your production and expertise in terms of putting that package together, right? Negotiating. I think, yeah, it was, it was good timing. And I think probably the best thing that I did was just be able to be naive and optimistic. Whereas they had seen this process done so many times, people saying to them, Hey, you got a really good thing going. How about we do this with it? How about we do that with it? How about we get some sponsors for the show? And every time there would be excitement and willingness to partner up with people. And then it would always sort of not work out in the end. So for me, this was my first go around and I had a lot more enthusiasm yeah. than they did. Yeah. I've heard you guys talk about, I guess, this, this story before. And it sounds like there was always different points where different people felt like calling it a day or throwing in the towel. And it took the enthusiasm of other people to kind of take it in turns of saying, no, let's keep going. So I guess having not only a great friendship amongst yourselves, but uh, a shared direction really helped bring it to where it is today, would you say? Yeah, they, they, I think that's more true for them before I came on. This idea of constantly every year someone being down about it and not wanting to continue and then the other two feeling optimistic only six months later to find themselves as the person that had been encouraging them only a few yeah. months earlier was now the person that wanted to quit. Partly for, I, I assume, mood reasons and also partly for circumstances changing. Like I said, you know, we've seen, <laughs> the, through the time we've been together, it's gone from, you know, people being 
single to people being engaged to people being married to people having kids to family members you know passing away to i mean it's it's been a long span of time it's been you know it's been like 11 or 12 years i guess since they started so it's we've we've seen a lot and and it definitely helps to have other people to encourage you and push you on those <laughs> weeks or months where you're not feeling particularly into it and as you can imagine with six people in a given week there's always going to be someone that's less into it than yeah. the other five <laughs> yeah okay so i guess the huge thing that's happened is the transition from the score in canada over to nba tv in atlanta how did that decision come about like was it a no-brainer or i guess at the side where everyone had to pack up their families that you've mentioned were growing and move to a new country that must have been pretty huge but was it such an opportunity that it wasn't really in question i like to think so i think it was ultimately different for everyone probably based on mostly on who had families and kids and thinking about are we going to take them out of school are we going to move away from our families my family didn't live in toronto anyways so that was less of a concern for me but I think you, you would think that it would be more of a big deal for six people to suddenly be told, hey, if you want to continue doing this, you know, you have to move to Atlanta. But the way I remember it, I remember everyone just saying yes first and then dealing with it on their own and then coming back and being like, yeah, okay, it's fine. Uh, yeah, I'm cool to move. But I think probably in between, there was some negotiating with fiancés and girlfriends and wives and families but yes it was pretty quick that everyone seemed to agree to do it which i don't know i guess it kind of surprised me to be honest that everyone was just so quick to say like yeah sure we'll move to a place we've never been to before i mean it's it's probably the pinnacle of where a show like that could end up right so you must be pretty happy to have that recognition to start with but also it's such an amazing opportunity yeah absolutely i think there was always, I was the one that was dealing with the negotiations with NBA TV. So I would be speaking to sort of the higher ups here. And then I would go back and report to the five other guys, hey, you know, this is what's going on. And I think that because they weren't talking to the people in Atlanta, there was a sense in their head of they were like, this isn't really going to happen, <laughs> right? Like the NBA is not going to want us to do a daily show for them in Atlanta where the network is and where Shaq and Chuck and Ernie work. And it, it just didn't, I don't think it ultimately computed. I think partly it was a defense mechanism that people didn't want to be disappointed if it didn't go through for some reason. And I think, you know, you do hear a lot of stories about these things falling apart along the way. But I remember we came down to Atlanta before we started working for them you know, I think they were like, sure, fly down to Atlanta, see if you like the city. And I went down for breakfast and saw Lee uh, eating alone. And so we, I sat down with him and he just sort of was like, kept like looking around the room of this hotel, you know, restaurant and just saying like, ah, so wait, this is going to happen? <laughs> and this is like maybe i don't know like a month two months before we ended up moving i think uh -huh. you know he was just like wow this is so crazy like i love the nba i'm from australia i moved to toronto and now suddenly i'm in atlanta like working with my heroes like that's really crazy uh and i think that was you know that was a great 
moment where I think it's sort of solidified for everyone that, yeah, this is a thing that's, that's going to happen. So yeah, it, it wasn't as difficult to, I would say there's no one that had to be convinced. It wasn't like five people were in and then we had to convince one of them to do it. Everyone was in from the beginning. Awesome. And yeah, and I'd say it's, it's worked out pretty well. There was a transition period and I'm sure like going from uh, the score to, I don't know if it's more corporate or how the structure and the politics of it all work, but I imagine that there was some different expectations on what the show would be moving it over to a more mainstream audience. So as the producer, how did you and the rest of the guys figure out that balance of staying true to what your fans the basketball Jones army expected or wanted from you, but at the same time, you know, pleasing the new bosses and the new fans that were going to come in and not necessarily get what you used to be. Cause I know there was a lot of changes that happened, especially I guess over time, if you look back to those, that first season, it's so different. You've got Twitter show and the drop now, and they were, they're great throwbacks to what TBJ used to be, but they weren't there for a while. And I think a lot of people missed that. Yeah. Um, the first season was very, very hard from from every perspective, from a social perspective to suddenly move to this new place. And we were working all the time, and that was difficult. The second part that was difficult was just technical stuff. We had produced a show every day in Toronto, but we did not produce a studio show. And suddenly we showed up here, and they were like, all right, well, you guys obviously know what you're doing, so go ahead and do it. And then JD and I would be like, oh, we have no idea what we're doing. We don't know how to produce a studio show. When we would do the podcast and, and record it, we would be in the room with them just shooting on a camera. Then we would put that footage on our computer, edit it on our computer, spit it out, and upload it to the internet. That was basically the extent of the production. When we came here, we were in a, the guys were in a studio. We were in a control room two floors away staring at 40 monitors, uh, four cameras, you know, six video ports, four graphic ports. We just had no idea how to do it. A- an intercom system, like even something as stupid as that, but, you know, talking to the guys on set versus talking to the guy that's running the tape versus talking to the graphics guy. I didn't, we didn't know how any of this worked. And I think something got lost in translation where they just assumed hey, Matt, you know how to produce a studio show, and hey, JD, you know how to direct it. And we didn't, and we experienced a ton of growing pains. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing is just conceptually what you're talking about. What is the show going to be? We didn't want to lose that sort of freeform, meandering discussion because we thought that was the strength of the show. So we came in and we said, okay, why don't we record the show every day but we'll record it as an hour-long podcast. Then we'll take that, like we'll film that. Then we'll take that and cut it down to 44 minutes because it was an hour TV show at that time. And then we'll cover it with B-roll and graphics and whatever. And so the podcast listeners will still get this raw, unedited conversation that they're used to. And the TV viewers will get the great chemistry of that conversation but edited down for tv and basically we were trying to serve two masters and we were failing miserably at both because suddenly the guys were on this giant set the conversation wasn't as organic 
as it was before. And the TV show was kind of boring, to be honest. It was just a 44-minute loose conversation. It didn't feel hemmed in in any way. And uh, after that first year, we went to NBA Summer League in Las Vegas, where the NBA TV wanted us to do the nightly recap show. That show was a half hour. And then suddenly in doing that, we got to trim all the fat from this hour-long show and do a really focused show and not worry about how it was going to sound on a podcast. And that's when the show really took off. And when we came back that summer, we said to our bosses, we got to change from this hour show to a half-hour show and actually make a TV show. And then once we're doing that and pleasing TV viewers, let's go back and create an audio-only podcast like we used to do. And that'll actually be a good podcast and the TV show will be a good TV show. So basically year two is when the show started to become the show it is today. But I don't really think it hit its stride until the end of the third, beginning of the fourth year. uh, When we moved into our own studio with our own set. And the guys became comfortable talking to each other on TV. And JD and I became comfortable respectively producing and directing for TV. Like, but... Wow, what a shock. Yeah, it takes you like three to four years to get good at a job you've never done before. Um, And so really, I think now we just sort of feel like we're hitting our stride from a production perspective. And I think the guys feel more and more comfortable every year we do this, which makes the the product so much better. So the, the, the short answer to your question is, we didn't know what the heck we were doing when we first got here. We failed at it. And then through our failure realized, hey, what do we like and what don't we like? And then every year, over time, started replacing the things that were bad and we didn't like with good things until really, like I said, in the fourth year, it became a show that I am not embarrassed to tell people to watch, (laughs) which is where I, luckily where I am today. It's pretty hard to find uh, footage of those early, early seasons. Are you implying that we've scrubbed them from the internet? Because it's possible. <laughs> I think particularly the episodes that you were in have been scrubbed, Matt. So <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm sure you had nothing to do with that. No, we truly didn't. What happened was, in those days, we, we weren't uh, actually allowed to upload the show, the video show, right. to YouTube. I think that was only in our third year. So really, it's difficult to find footage from the first two years. And it's actually funny because it's one thing to not have them on the internet. If there was no place to upload them to, that's not a surprise. But just the other day, I was actually trying to find something that happened to be from like the fourth show. And we looked back into the NBA TV archives and it wasn't even there. And we sort of looked into it and they were like, oh yeah, we don't know what happened to those first (laughs) shows. So either it was an accident or some, some sweet angel here is looking out for us by deleting them. But I wish they were still around because now that you have a good show, it you can look back on those early ones and laugh. Yeah. Someone, whoever's in charge of that was probably like, oh, these guys won't last. We don't need to keep this crap. I don't mind telling you there were many people that said that here. Yeah. And I suppose if I was an outside viewer, maybe I would have thought the same things. But they didn't know how determined we were. Yeah, you did it. Look at you now. Yeah, look at us now, haters. <laughs> So what would you say has been the hardest part of this whole journey for you? 
I think the things that I, that I had that I always have, I mean, they're certainly getting better, but just that creative spirit and the ability to figure out what's important about a story and how to tell it. The hard part, the biggest challenge part is how do you do that in mediums you've never done before? So first in podcasting, which I'd never done before, and then in sort of these short form uh, features or sketches that we used to shoot for TBJ to then uh, doing a video podcast, then coming over here and then learning how to do it on TV. So just sort of the technical skills of editing and uh, producing that I've had to learn along the way have been the biggest, the biggest challenge by far. Okay. And what would be your advice to anyone who wants to take the podcast or the show that they've been doing for a while to a point where someone is paying them to do it for their network, whether it's sponsors or whatever it is, something that makes it viable. Yeah. I, I mean, I wonder if the, the monetization conversation is, is putting the, the cart before the horse in the sense of if your show is not good and your show doesn't have an audience, whether that's a big audience or a small audience, but a devoted audience, why would anyone pay for it. So I guess the answer, my answer would be to focus on, on the quality of the show. Now, of course, I'm, there's many, many quality shows out there that don't end up um, getting monetized. And for a long time, our show was that. Mm. And, but for a few simple twists of fate, that might have been the, you know, the end of that, of our show. So certainly luck has, and timing has something to do with it. I mean, to talk about timing for a second, if you think about it, doing a podcast in 2006 is so different than starting a podcast in 2018. The, the good side to starting it now is it's a known technology. People um, understand it. People know how to download it. But the downside is there's so many. How do you cut through that noise? When we were around, one of the things that helped our show at the start was it was called The Basketball Jones. It's 2006. Let's say you live in a place where you, you, know, you don't get the NBA or it's on at weird times, which it is for you, you go to iTunes and you're like, hey, I wonder if there's a basketball podcast that could keep me updated on my favorite sport. You type in basketball, oh, the Basketball Jones, what's that? You download it. It's one of maybe two or three podcasts that exist about basketball. So it makes it easy to find. I mean, we're talking about a time before ESPN had podcasts or certainly had basketball mm. podcasts. And so even now, our show is so much more popular, and we have so many more listeners, but if you look at the iTunes charts, we're not as high as we once were in maybe like 2008, just because there's so many more shows out there. So what was I ranting about? Oh, right, what uh, <laughs> advice on, on what to do. Yeah, so, so certainly things you can't control, like luck and timing are important. So let's, we'll, we'll put those aside, but they shouldn't be taken for granted. Yeah, focus on, on the quality of the show and, and maybe filling a, a vacuum. Our, that's what our show did. There was not really anything like it that existed. And I, I would say this too. What's the frequency you're doing the show with? Is it once a week just because it's fun to do it once a week? Maybe that's hard for people to keep up with if it's just once a week. They're gonna, they forget about it by the time it comes back around. Maybe you absolutely need to do it twice a week. Or in our case, the big differentiator was we eventually did it every single day. Mm. And now we, we're a habit in your life. Every day you wake up, you know that podcast is going to be there. You listen to it. Our guys are in your ears every day. You start to get to know them, their rhythms. 
and you start to feel like maybe something's incomplete if you don't listen to it that day. So maybe once a week isn't enough. But certainly whatever you do, keeping it habitual, keeping it regular so that people can come to rely on it and expect it is very important. Okay. Well, Matt, the last question that I ask everyone is what would you do if you knew that you couldn't fail? Oh, uh, stand-up comedy. Okay. For sure. And, and, and You've done a bit of improv. Uh, yeah, I've done a bit of terrible improv. Uh, but the reason why it's so good to use this not failing thing in stand-up comedy is it's A, so easy to fail, and B, so apparent when you fail, i.e. no one is laughing. Uh, so yeah, I'll take that not fail card and definitely use it there. That sounds pretty good. Would you ever, like I know basketball not being your main passion, but you obviously love media production and that kind of thing, would you ever do a podcast outside of the sports world? Yeah, I, I definitely would. The pro, the well, not the problem, but the thing is, this keeps me so busy. We do seven shows a week, Monday to Friday. There's the five TV mm. shows, and then there's the drop podcast on Friday, the Twitter show on Tuesday. So there's not a lot of time. The other thing that I think would maybe push me towards doing another show, and a reason why I don't is I actually do have creative outlets on this show. First of all, every day is a creative outlet to create the show, but then on the Twitter show and on the drop. You know, I'm chiming in and sharing thoughts if I have them. So it's not like I'm sitting there going, well, I got, I got a lot chambered that I got to get out there. <laughs> uh, but I definitely, I definitely would. I love our, the podcast we do in the summer where we stop talking about basketball and start talking about yes. other nonsense. I think those are really fun uh, and sh- sort of show that if you got, you know, you have chemistry on one topic, you tend to have it when you discuss other things so i find in a lot of ways my creative needs are are met but yes i absolutely would do another podcast another topic Mm. yeah i think the the blank jones and whatever you call the summer ones now the quality that they are and how much people love them show that if you guys got sick of basketball or if nba tv got sick of you you'd have no problem building a following through patreon or something because the quality of those shows is so great Oh, well, thank you. It is a huge compliment that we get more than I would expect to get it. But people saying, I listen to your show and I don't watch basketball. You know, they're like, I I used to, but I don't anymore. And I still, I follow the league just exclusively through you guys. And people even saying, I actually don't like basketball and I like your show. Maybe they, (laughs) it was on because they're, you know, their boyfriend or their girlfriend was listening to it and they're like, ugh, turn this off in the car. But then eventually, you know, it got stuck in their head and they enjoyed it. You know, the one of the biggest critical accomplishments, uh, not accomplishments, but compliments we've received is um, Splitsider, which is this comedy website, named our show. that was like top comedy podcasts of the year, I guess. And mm. I forget the category, but it was something like comedy, best comedy show that's not actually a comedy podcast or something like that. Which is great that people awesome. um, can listen to it and get the basketball parts out of it, but uh, can also get sort of the just the conversation humor parts out of it as well. Definitely. So before we wrap things up, is there anything that Lee has said about Australia that you want me to either confirm or refute? Because <laughs> <laughs> well, he says a lot of crazy stuff. <laughs> well, the short answer is I just don't believe anything he says about <laughs> really anything. Um <laughs> things he said about australia what part of australia are you from uh i'm about an hour and a half 
I think, from where he grew up. I mean, Geelong. Okay. Sunbury, is that, was that the place that he's from? Yeah. Uh, which is near Melbourne, is that right? Yeah, I think it's a suburb of Melbourne. Okay. Um, oh, well, what he says, like, when he talks about, like, he remembers the year that, like, a certain board <laughs> game came to his, you know, city or something. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, 87, when Mal- when Monopoly came around and we were the first people to have it. Or, uh, you know, like, the first McDonald's or, you know, I don't know. Yeah. He makes a lot of bold claims well, I can about... I can't validate the dates, uh, especially since I was born in 87. But I, I do, like, it is a memorable thing here when your town or your suburb gets its first McDonald's or its first KFC. <laughs> he's, uh, I think he's slightly scared of Australians, to be honest. Do you get that sense? Uh, yeah, I think I know what you mean. Like, you mean if they come up to him at a bar or something and they're half drunk and loud and kind of scary? Is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah, I just think, well, do you guys identify with, like, what we think of as the stereotypical Aussie? Like a bro who loves skydiving and surfing and he's always got a shirt off and he's got like, you know, definitely blonde hair. Probably as much as Americans identify with our stereotype of them and Canadians of them, you know. Okay, what's your, what's your Canadian stereotype? Just the super nice non-American. Oh, <laughs> Canadians and Aussies are pretty pretty close, I think. Like the typical Canadian, the typical Aussie aren't that far apart. Yeah, yeah. But I think there's just a there's a, a, a stereotypical sort of bro, Australian bro, that I don't know how true it is, but that's that's I think the person that Lee is afraid is afraid of. Not physically afraid of, but just okay. like you know, doesn't want to become embroiled in a conversation with, with someone like that. Sure. Yeah, I can understand that. Especially when there's been six pints or something in between. But yeah, I mean Lee is a kind of a dream guest for this show because I think his story is so amazing. Like you mentioned before, a kid from Melbourne growing up, living in a bunch of different countries and then ending up working for the NBA. That's pretty crazy. Lee's story is probably one of the most, one of the craziest and most inspiring, you know, career stories that I've ever heard. I mean, it's insane. And I'll, I'll tell him to, to come on. I mean, not tell him. I'm sure he wants to. He's, he's busy, but... Uh, <laughs> It's crazy. It's so crazy that he would pay his friend whose dad worked for Qantas to pull old USA Todays off flights originating in America so he could check NBA box scores at a time when there was zero NBA coverage in Australia and then be working for NBA TV. That's insane. It is. It really is. Um, So, yeah, you should definitely have him on. Cool. Well, enough about Lee. Thanks so much for your time, Matt. And, uh, yeah, I, I really do appreciate, uh, that you got back to me and shared so much of your story. The whole basketball Jones starters story is inspiring to me and a lot of listeners out there like me. So not just Lee, but all you guys, uh, keep up the great work and just thanks for so much great content over the years. Well, thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. And thanks to all of Australia for being, I, I don't know what the metrics are, but I think at one point it was like the second most. It was probably Canada, the U.S., and then Australia of where the most people listen to our show were from. Uh, so we got to make it out there. We're always talking about it, doing some kind of live show there. And it, I'm here's my prediction. It will happen. It will happen sooner. We'll be there before the NBA has a game there. That's for sure. <laughs> the army is strong. The army is strong. 
and for the Stardust fans, I couldn't resist the urge to drop this in. You heard it here first. Have a great time. Turn up. Love you guys. Awesome. Thank you for listening. That was Matt Austin from The Starters. You can check him out on Twitter at Starters Matt. Check out The Starters on the NBA TV YouTube channel or facebook.com slash The Starters. It's official. They're now on Facebook. You can find links to my merch at 8bit.net slash PIW. I'm on Twitter at Johnny himself. Until next week, keep putting in work.